Hello. Welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. Welcome friends, it's great to see you back for week two. Make this a little bit higher. My name is Tim, if we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here on campus. And it's great that we can again dig into this rich letter. Let's pray together. Letter? It's a gospel, whatever this thing is that we're looking at. Let's pray and ask that God would help us to understand this word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another opportunity to gather uh, out of the rain, out of the wind, out of the cold, in order to hear you speak. Father, we pray that by your spirit you may give us understanding and that you may help us to obey your word and find comfort in your truth. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Can I ask you, what is the blessing of the Christian life? If you call yourself a Christian, if you're here just checking things out, what is it that you expect from God if you commit your life to following Jesus? One caricature of this is that Christian blessing is all in the future. Some people might say it's pie in the sky when you die. This life is about suffering and hardship, but we endure, we persevere, we keep going because we know that there's a glorious future. Heaven, peace with God, eternity with no more pain or suffering or death or crying. Others think that the Christian blessing, the promise, the hope that we have is a lot more immediate. It's all about this life and the here and now. You might say it's about steak on your plate while you wait. In its extreme form, that can take the form of the prosperity gospel. The idea that you should expect, Christians should expect good physical health, often through the miraculous, and great material wealth as God's blessing for you in this life. Now, most Christians believe that there is a glorious future. It's just what happens in the here and now that they may disagree on. And so, as we come to this passage, as Jesus is here on the the night before he dies, he actually gives his followers and us a picture of what the Christian life is that will follow. Is the life a blessing or is that all just in the future? Have a look at Jesus' words to his followers. Uh, If you pick it up in verse 2 of chapter 14. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now in these verses, people typically think that Jesus is talking about heaven, about the hope of heaven. They think Jesus is reassuring his disciples that Should they die or on the day of their death, when they get to heaven, they won't be greeted by a no vacancy sign. Don't fear, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you in heaven so that you can know that you'll be secure with me forever. And there's great comfort in that, isn't there? Knowing that there is a secure home for you, an eternal home, a glorious home, that no matter what happens in this life, that is secure. That is your future. But is that really the hope, the assurance, the confidence that Jesus wanted to give his followers the night before he died? I mean, if you think about it, Jesus is basically saying, hey guys, I'm out of here. But don't worry, if you die, it'll all be okay. We're going to have a party in the sky and I've got the accommodation sorted. Is that what you really think Jesus is saying the night before he died? Could there be another hope that Jesus is giving his followers to cling to through all that was about to come? I actually wonder whether that idea of the no vacancy sign in heaven has never really been a concern for God's people. Has anyone feared they're going to 
turn up and say, no, no, it's full? What is Jesus offering his disciples and what is he offering us in this life and the life to come? Uh, we're at point two, and I wonder if it's actually not a hope in heaven, or at least not first and foremost. You see, the last time Jesus spoke about his father's house, he was describing the temple back in chapter two. If you have a look on the screen, the temple, uh, Jesus comes in, he clears it out, and he describes it as his father's house. And that kind of makes sense because the temple was seen as God's dwelling place on earth with his people. And if Jesus is the son of God, then it makes sense that he calls God's dwelling his father's house. And that much makes sense. But what Jesus says next took everyone by surprise. If you pick it up in verse 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then, then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, Jesus claimed that through his death and resurrection, the days of that stone temple, God's dwelling place in Jerusalem, they would come to an end. And in its place, a new temple reality would be formed. It would be formed in the body of Jesus. In fact, Jesus was the temple, the place where God dwelled among his people. Now, fast forward a few, a few years from that time, and we come to the night before Jesus' death the night before this great transformation was going to take place. And Jesus comes back to the theme of the temple. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. And we're thinking, okay, why do we need to know this now? I know some people here might get excited about architecture and room planning, but really the night before you die, is that the time to talk about the floor plan of the temple? And besides, in that temple in Jerusalem, were there really that many rooms? What was Jesus' point? Or even more, if Jesus was the temple, how many rooms are there in Jesus? It seems perhaps a little bit strange. But then at the same time in verse 3, Jesus says that what's going to happen? He's going to come again and he's going to take them to himself, that where I am, you may be also. So maybe there is something about us having a room in Jesus. That does sound a little bit strange. Now, uh, we're having some clicker issues, but Hamish is there on high alert to come down and press buttons, but it's all good for now, brother. You can relax. I'll shout if we need you. So we've got this temple. We've got this idea of dwelling in Jesus. And there's one other connection that I think helps us put the pieces together in this chapter, but it's a little bit hidden. When John first wrote his historical account, he wrote it in the common language of the day in Greek. And in verse 2, he uses a bit of a strange word for rooms. It basically just means to dwell. It's not too strange. But the only other time that word is used in the whole Bible is down in verse 23. See if you can spot it. It's at the end of the verse, and it describes God making his home or dwelling. And where does God dwell? Well, with anyone who loves Jesus. Now, that's an interesting development. Could the many dwellings in the Father's home actually represent many people who love Jesus? The very people that God is going to come and dwell with or dwell within. You see, the temple had always been about God dwelling with His people, and that wasn't going to change. But it was going to look in a radically different way in the future. Just as Jesus alluded to back in chapter 2, his body was his temple 
And through his death and resurrection, radical new things were going to happen to that temple. Because now on the eve of these transformations, Jesus comforts his disciples with this great new reality, a great new way of union, of dwelling, of being with God. I wonder if the transformation is a bit like the, dis- the difference between a long-distance relationship and getting married. I mean, with your long-distance relationship, you can see each other, you go to your phone as the place of meeting, uh, and you can communicate and you can have a relationship, and there's a goodness to it. But when you come to the, the intimacy, the joy of actually living in a home together, of marriage, that unity, that joy, that fellowship, that intimacy, is so much greater, isn't it? And I wonder if that's partly the kind of idea that we see when Jesus talks about moving from that stone temple where you could go and meet with God and know that He was dwelling amongst you to that profound intimacy of God actually dwelling within you. That is the comfort that Jesus was offering His disciples the night before He died. From a building out there to God dwelling in here. The hour of Jesus' departure had come. Uh, That was going to be a sad, a challenging, a scary hour with all that it was going to bring. But Jesus' great assurance to his disciples is that they won't be left at orphans. Far from it, God was actually going to come and make his home within them. Now, all this was going to require a bit of preparation, understandably. And so twice in verses 2 and 3, Jesus says he must actually go and prepare a place for them. Now, here's an opportunity for you to do a bit of thinking. What does it involve for Jesus to actually go and prepare a place for you, for his followers? Introduce yourself to the person next to you. Take 30 seconds. And I'd love to hear your answers, so get ready to dob in your friend. All right, friends, let's come back together. All right, let's, let's dive into it. I wonder if the way that we've actually been framing the passage and thinking about what it means for this new temple to be dwelling in Jesus actually helps us to understand it. I think when we think of Jesus preparing a home in heaven, we can think of him kind of building a room for us, like he's that heavenly carpenter knocking up a few frames in the house. Or maybe if the house is already there, he's the, the hotel cleaner pulling up the sheets and putting a towel and a bar of soap in the corner of the bed. But if Jesus is preparing people like you and me for God to dwell within, then maybe it does involve more of the sacrifice to actually clean us up so that we can be with God. We are the ones that need the cleaning. And if you hear last week, you saw that that's just what Jesus said he was going to go and do in chapter 13. When he washed his disciples' feet, he was preparing them to understand what was about to happen in the cleaning that was going to come through his death in their place. You see, on the cross, Jesus takes all of our wrongdoing on himself and he gets rid of it once and for all as it's consumed by the righteous judgment of God. It is only through Jesus that you and I can be prepared as a place for God to come and dwell with him. And that's why Jesus says some of the most offensive and important verses in the whole Bible. You have a look at verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Even though Jesus wouldn't physically be with his disciples for much longer, his message is pretty clear, isn't it? I am the way. Stick with me. Hold fast to me because the only way to know God is through Jesus. The only way to live is being with Jesus. And the only way to God is in Jesus. Because actually in Jesus, God can come to dwell with you. 
Now, you've probably noticed that our world, it hates universal truth claims. The only universal truth, it seems, is that there is no universal truth. And our world does this because if there's universal truth, then someone can have power over you. And they can tell you what to do. You can be wrong. Your choices might not be validated. And so universal truth is seen as an oppressive thing in our world. But if we scrap all universal truth, then we make this own little bubble where I am my own God. I determine what is true. I determine what is right. And no one has any right to tell me what to do or that my choices and my freedoms are wrong. That's what we're hearing more and more in our world. But do you notice that the the one true God says that's just nonsense? It's nonsense because there is universal truth. It's nonsense because there is a universal God, a one true and living God, and He has revealed the universal truth to us. And He says if you want to know truth, you need to look to Jesus. If you want to find life, don't just wrap yourself up within yourself, but come to Jesus and your desires will actually be fulfilled. If you want to know the God who made you and actually knows the best way for you to live your life, then you need to come to Jesus and He will show you what a fulfilling and a valuable and a joyful life can really look like. See, Jesus is the only place where our deepest desires can be quenched. And that is what God has lovingly revealed to the world through Jesus. Jesus urges His disciples to stick with Him. And as they do, He promises that God will come and dwell with them. And Jesus makes that possible through His death on the cross. So what would it mean for God to dwell with His people? We're at point three, peace on earth. In verse 16, as we keep on reading through, we come to a new character. Uh, the English Standard Version that we had read for us just before, it describes him and he translates his title, if you like, as helper. Uh, you've probably got a footnote if you look closely enough. You might say that other good ways of translating this word are an advocate or a counsellor. If you're reading another English translation, you might have one of those words. Or if you transliterate, so you get the Greek letters that was originally written in and you replace them with English letters, you come up with the word paraclete. You might have heard that tossed around. So you've got these different words, titles that describe this guy. But the basic essence, the basic understanding of who he is or or what he does, well, he's someone who is advocating for you. He stands by your side and he shouts for you. Now, you might think of the over-enthusiastic parent on the sideline kind of cheering you on. In the ancient world, it had more of a legal connotation, like that barrister standing beside you, arguing your case, defending you or pushing the truth in your defense. Now, when God comes to dwell with His disciples and to dwell within us, He comes to help us, to advocate for us, and to guide us in the truth. And so, verse 17 describes Him as the Spirit of truth. Now, if you're not studying law, you might think this sounds surprising for a barrister, someone who comes to bring the truth. But this is God who comes to dwell with us and not a lawyer, which is a good thing. And He comes to advocate for us. And if Jesus is the truth, the spirit that comes in Jesus' name shares his character. He is the, Jesus is the truth, and it is the spirit of truth. And that is a great thing, because it means that people like you and me can actually know the truth. If you take a look at verse 26, Jesus taught his disciples while he was with them, but when he was away from them, he said that the helper, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and He'll bring to your remembrance all that I've said. Isn't that a wonderful promise? 
because this was a particular blessing for those who'd seen and heard and been with Jesus through his life. They'd seen a lot, but they weren't going to be on their own as they had this mission to then share this news with the world. God was going to come and be with them to help them recall all that was true and to record it so that we can know it. We actually skipped over chapter 13 and verse 20 last week, but if you flip back there, Jesus, on the night before he died, was preparing his disciples for this mission. Chapter 13 and verse 20, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. See, Jesus was going, but he said, I'm going to send you out as my disciples. Anyone who receives you, it's like they receive me. And if they receive Jesus, they're receiving the Father. So through the disciples going out, God makes himself present to the world. He did it through the words of the disciples. He's now doing it through the writing of the disciples as he continues to speak to us through God's word today. And that means that you and I can sit here or you can sit at a cafe on campus and read the Bible with someone and someone can receive God through the words that have been preserved for us by the Spirit. Isn't this a glorious work of God? By the work of the Spirit, the truth of God can be made present to us. So we can receive life and truth and we can know God. But you notice that verse 16 also says that the Spirit is another helper. He comes to fulfill a similar role to what Jesus has done, the one who was with us. But unlike Jesus, whose time has now come to depart, what does it say verse 16? The helper will be with them forever. God will never leave them. Even when their earthly bodies die, they will continue to be with God, having life with Him for all eternity. They will never be alone. And isn't that a great promise for us? One of the big challenges of COVID has been loneliness. I'm not sure if you felt this. I was talking to a friend in France who lives on her own, and she was saying through those long periods of lockdown, it's been really hard. It's been really isolating, cut off from any physical human contact. You can talk to people, you can see their faces, but to be isolated, that's lonely. That's hard. But perhaps you know that this isn't just something restricted to France. Uh, The surveys show that young adults have been particularly hit by this loneliness through COVID all around the world. But you may even know that it's not just a COVID problem. A 2018 study in Australia showed that, sorry for weird fonts, one in four Australian adults are lonely. That four is a bit lonely on its own line. But do you find that that shocking? One in four Australian adults are lonely. They feel like they don't fit into the social groups around them. They feel like they don't have someone to turn to. They feel like some people around them don't understand them. They feel like they are alone and isolated and cut off. No one to depend on. No one who knows them well. That's really sad. God's made us deeply social creatures, but sometimes these interactions can bring a whole lot of anxiety and trouble and hurt to our lives. Many of us find it hard and isolating, even when we're surrounded by a bunch of other people. And yet into our lonely world, God promises that His children will be never alone. God's always with us. And God truly knows us. Sometimes do you fear that if your friends or your family 
really knew who you are, the stuff that goes on in your head, the stuff that you've done that no one else knows, do you feel they wouldn't be your friends if they knew the real you? The wonderful truth of this passage is that the true and living God who knows your deepest, darkest secrets, not only has He dealt with them through His Son's death on the cross in your place, but even in spite of all the mess in your life, He's come to dwell with you and He will never leave you. Doesn't that give us great assurance and confidence and hope? Isn't it great to have someone by your side? Whether it's turning up to a party or your first day of uni, joining a sports team or just going through life, having someone who's there with you. Now, having God dwelling with you isn't like just that false hope of an imaginary friend. It is true hope and comfort because He's a real person. And not just a friend who's a nice companion. He's actually the one who rules and is upholding the entire universe. And He cares about you. And He loves you. And He's with you. And you can talk to Him. You can share your anxieties, your concerns, your hopes and your desires with Him all the time. And He listens to you. And He is with you. And He strengthens you for all that is ahead. On the night before Jesus' betrayal and arrest, there was all kind of turmoil ahead for the disciples. What a great comfort Jesus offers them that God would be with them always. Even as they scattered, as Jesus went on alone, they would never be alone. And so it makes sense then, doesn't it, that in verse 17, Jesus says he's actually giving peace to his disciples. Not just peace beyond the grave, as we might say, rest in peace, but peace right here, peace now on earth. Peace is what we all desire, isn't it? Living in harmony, able to relax, to drop our shoulders, things going well, nothing to actually be anxious or unsure or stressed about. Peace is lovely, but peace is all too fleeting in the world, isn't it? When peace is driven by circumstances, it's, we get a taste of it and then it's almost gone before we've been able to really relax in it. But God promises a lasting peace, a deep peace that even transcends the experiences and the circumstances of life. Because you see, even on this night when a mob's about to come and arrest Jesus and crucify him the next morning, Jesus says his followers can have peace. And that's a pretty profound peace, isn't it? Peace that can be through the biggest turmoils of life. Because this is Jesus' peace. The peace that comes from God that transcends and surpasses worldly understanding. It's the eternal and divine peace from being reconciled to God. To having the God who's controlling all things with you. The comfort of knowing that He has a good plan and He will hold on to you through it all. You probably know Philippians 4 verse 6 where the Apostle Paul writes about this transcendent peace that surpasses worldly understanding. Do you know that experience in your life? That's God's promise for His children. Now, the events that were about to take place, Jesus' arrest, His trial, His crucifixion, His burial, these were things that were going to shake the beliefs of His disciples to their very core. But one of the ways that Jesus gives them peace is actually preparing them beforehand for what's going to take place. In verse 29, He says, as we saw again last week, I've told you this before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. For them and for us, knowing that Jesus was in control helps us to believe. Then in verses 30 and 31, Jesus tells us what's going to take place at the cross. He says, the ruler of this world is going to come. Now, the ruler of the world is Satan. That's not because Satan is more powerful than God or has beaten God. 
But in judgment on the world that rejected him, God has subjected the world to the rule of Satan. And when Satan comes, Jesus would be arrested. He'd be put to death. But don't be confused into thinking that that shows that Satan has defeated Jesus, that he somehow won. No, Jesus tells us that Satan's got nothing on him, no claim on on him, and no charge to bring against him. He is the perfect son of God. No, so Jesus went to the cross willingly, out of love for his father, he says. Jesus dies as like a, a jewel in the crown of God's eternal plan of salvation, the plan for his glory to be manifest to the whole world. And as part of that, we have the blessing of being saved, of being prepared as a dwelling place for God, being prepared to dwell with God forever. So are you with God? When it comes to being with God, do you first notice how intimately Jesus is connected with God all through this passage? In verse 1, Jesus is equated with God as the one we believe in, a claim that would be blasphemous if it weren't true. Then in verse 6, Jesus says he's the only way to God and to knowing God. In verses 7 and 9, Jesus even says, if you've heard me, if you've seen me, if you've experienced me, then you've actually seen and heard God the Father. And that's because in verse 11, Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. You can't conceive of a closer unity, can you? Now, if you were to meet my son, you'd know some things about me. He's tall, he's blonde, there's a bit of a family likeness. We share some of the same DNA. We both like riding bikes. Hopefully, if you spend some time with him, you'd see how, he'd, how he acts, how he behaves. And hopefully, that reflects some of my behavior. That's the aim, to impart that on the children, but there's some loss along the way, it seems. As he talks, he'd reveal things about me. I'm not sure if you've talked much with kids. They're a great unfiltered window into family life. Who knows what he'd tell you, but you'd find out stuff about me and our family. But even with all of that, you still wouldn't truly know me. But it's a completely different story with Jesus and his heavenly Father. Jesus is described in Colossians 1 as the image of the invisible God. It's a great picture, isn't it? In Hebrews 1, he's the exact imprint of God's nature. You see, Jesus is perfectly one with God. And if you want to know God, you look no further than Jesus Christ. He is where you can see God and know God. Because God has come to dwell with us in His Son. And then you add into this profound unity of Father and Son, the Spirit. The Holy Spirit who comes from God in the name of Jesus to continue the work of Jesus in the world. It's God's Spirit that comes to dwell in believers in verse 17. But down in verse 23, it's also the Father and the Son. The Holy Triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit comes to make His home in believers. Not only is there a profound unity in God, but you and I can be wrapped up in that unity as God dwells with us. So what does the life of walking with God, united with God, look like? Well, there's two aspects. It's all about working and obedience. Let's start with working in verse 12. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I'll do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Jesus did some pretty impressive stuff, but you can do greater works than him. 
And you've got that blank check of prayer. Ask anything in my name and I will do it. It's wonderful. It's powerful. What could stop you if only you believed it? Because you don't, do you? You haven't experienced this. You don't think that's actually genuinely the way that you're going to live as you walk out of here? So what does it mean? Here's another chance to chat with you. The friend next to you, what are the greater works that Christians do? Have a look at 12 to 14. Enjoy the chat. All right, friends, let's come back together. Hopefully you had a a fun and fruitful discussion. Uh, As we read through these chapters, some of what Jesus says in these chapters is particular to the disciples. Those 11 followers gathered around Jesus sharing the meal with him. Uh, Things like verse 26 and that particular work of the Spirit to help them remember and recall and pass on the things they'd experienced. But verse 12 is different, isn't it? Verse 12 begins, Whoever believes in me. This is not a promise particular to those 11 disciples. This is the normal Christian experience. This is what you and I should experience. Now, when Jesus healed the sick, He made the lame walk. He made the blind see. He walked on water. He turned a kid's lunchbox into a meal for thousands. He turned water into wine. He brought a dead guy back to life. Have you done greater works than those? It's hard to imagine what that could actually be. How could it be possible for someone to do things more impressive or spectacular than the Lord Jesus as he walked this earth? How do we make sense of it? Notice the reason Jesus gives for this great promise. He says it's because he's going to the Father. Somehow through his death, resurrection and ascension that was about to take place, it was going to enable the disciples to do these greater works. I wonder if verse 11, just before it, also helps us. You see, Jesus has been doing the works of God and he calls his disciples to believe in him. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. You see that? Jesus says, believe my words, or else you can believe my works, because they also point to who I am. So could our greater works be bringing people to believe in Jesus, just like his works were intended to do? And that's something that God says we do primarily through our words, not through our miracles. Jesus had to go to his father to, if you like, to complete God's salvation story. But now that his work of salvation is finished, well, our work of proclamation has just begun. For the disciples, they needed to understand that what Jesus' death was all about. And on the night before he died, Jesus wanted to make it really clear that death, my death, is not the end. It is only the beginning of the work that I've prepared for you. So don't pack up and go home after I'm crucified. Get ready for a life of labor. And that's the labor that you and I, remember, everyone who's a believer of Jesus, that's the work that we continue. And I know you're sitting there thinking, if I could raise the dead, that's far more spectacular than just speaking the good news that Jesus offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But if you think about it, you raise Lazarus, he's going to end up in the tomb again in a few years' time. You speak the words of life that God can forgive and reconcile. And that person's been dragged out of death and damnation. To have God dwell within them for forever. It's our material minds that think that the miraculous is more spectacular. 
but the salvation that you and I, that every believer can proclaim, is a far greater work, isn't it? That is the spectacular blessing that God gives all of His people. But notice that we don't do it alone. We couldn't. That's what verses 13 and 14 are about. Just because Jesus is invisible, it doesn't mean that He's packed up and He stopped working. Jesus continues to work in our world and He works for the glory of God in answer to our prayers. But just how far can we go with asking God anything? Are there any limits on what He will do for us? I mean, twice Jesus stresses, ask whatever, ask anything. But also twice He stresses that you ask in His name. And that's the key. To ask in Jesus' name is to ask in line with His character and His purposes. And now often when we pray, we finish our prayers in Jesus' name, Amen. And so we can think that's just a a magical bucket kind of thing that whatever you said beforehand is now in Jesus' name and therefore He should do it. But I wonder if I can illustrate it to you. Sorry, I've gone back to my kids. But sometimes they'll come to me and they'll say, Dad, Mom said we could go to the beach. Can we? They've come asking me a question in Mom's name. But imagine if they were to ask in my own name. They come up and they say, Hey, Dad, you said we could go to the beach. Can we? Now, it's interesting there. If they're asking in my name, either I've said this or I haven't. It's not some magical code that if they say, Dad, you said, I'll do whatever they say. But if they're asking me to do something that I've said I'll do or that I've promised to them, then I'll do it. And it's the same with Jesus. Jesus is saying, I've given you work to do. If you ask in my name, if you ask the things that I've promised you, I'd love to answer them. I promise to answer them. I will do them. And so what does it mean for us to pray in line with God's will? Well, I wonder if, just given verse 12, this greater work that He's just given us, I assume it's going to include the salvation of the lost, isn't it? Ask Jesus to save those, to to do these greater works through them. And that's a prayer He delights to answer. Secondly, I ask, are you praying for your friends who don't know Jesus? His promise is He wants to answer our prayers that are in His name, aligned with His will in the world. And now secondly, life with God is to be characterized by obedience to Jesus. But did you notice how obedience is inextricably linked with love? Have a look at verse 15. Love leads to keeping Jesus' commands. In verse 21, love and obedience are equated with each other. And then in verse 23, love again leads to keeping Jesus' words. Now that makes sense. You know? I, I want my children to express their love for me through obedience. It doesn't always work, but that's the goal. And, and, their, and their obedience is an expression of love, at least ideally. And if love for Jesus rightly recognizes who He is, as the Lord, as the, the sovereign over all, won't we want to obey Him out of rightly understanding who He is? And remember, He's not some evil dictator wanting to give us harsh and burdensome commands. He's the one who lovingly gave His life for us so that we could have Him dwell with us forever. His words are life-giving. They're good. They're joyful to live out and to follow. And again, it's the work of the Spirit in our lives to bring about the obedience to God's Word. So what are Jesus' commands? What are His words and that we are to obey? Well, I guess at one level we need to hear the words of Jesus that the Spirit has preserved for us in John's account of Jesus' life. 
Keep reading it. Keep on coming back. Keep studying it to hear the words that we are to obey. But I guess for a start, in verse 1, we've seen believe in God, believe also in me. There's a command, believe in Jesus and the Father. And then a few verses earlier, if you are here last week, we saw in chapter 13 and verse 34, Jesus gave his followers a new commandment, a commandment to love one another just as Jesus has loved them. And I wonder if you'd also say that doing the greater works of verse 12 is a command that Jesus has left for his followers. That's a pretty good start, isn't it? What does this Christian life of obedience look like? Well, love Jesus by believing in him, by loving his people, and loving the world by praying for them and seeking to bring salvation to them, bring them to be reconciled to God. Probably a fair summary of the Christian life. How are you going joyfully living that out day by day? Is it a blessing for you to live that out day by day? With God within you and Jesus working through you? So can I finish by asking, are you with God? Jesus' great promise as He left is that He would come and He would dwell with His disciples, giving them life and peace and the most valuable work to do in all the world. Do you know this for yourself? If not, come to God today through the Lord Jesus Christ to be washed, to be cleansed, to find life, to know the truth and to live with God forever. There is no greater blessing that you could have in life and beyond for eternal life. If you want to find out more, if you have other questions, do tick this box on the side that Alex told us about. Second from the top, I'd like to learn about Jesus, more about Jesus. And we'd love to get in touch with you. If the course starting next week works, that's great. Otherwise, we'd love to answer any questions to help you to know what it could look like for you to receive this blessing. And if you are with God, do you thank Him for the incredible blessing that God is dwelling within you? And is your life committed to doing the the most valuable work that He's given to you? Independence on Him, loving Him, believing in Him, loving the people He's saved and loving the world that is around you. Let's keep living in love and obedience to our great King. Let's pray. Almighty Lord, we thank you so much that Jesus did not leave us alone, that as He went to be with you, He washed us clean so that you could come and dwell with us. Father, thank you that that gives us great confidence and assurance through this life and the life to come, that you strengthen us to do the work that you've prepared for us. Father, may we be bold in our prayers. May we be loving in all that we do. And may you be glorified by our lives on earth. And Father, if we do not yet know the love and the peace that you offer, may we come and find forgiveness through Jesus today. And Father, we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out at Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.